0: fourth episode of the podcast series Talking APAC. APAC is short for Australian Psychology Accreditation Council and we're the organisation that ensures the quality of psychology courses offered by higher education providers in Australia. APAC acknowledges the Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples as the traditional caretakers of the land and we pay our respects to elders past and present. My name is David Glanz, and I'm recording this podcast on the land of the Wurundjeri people, one of the five Kulin nations. Sometimes busy people, and everyone listening is, I'm sure, a busy person, don't have the time to stop and question what they're doing and why they're doing it. And that's just as true for us here at APAC. We're in the business of accreditation and that brings us into regular contact with academics and professional staff running psychology programs at more than 40 higher education providers. But why? What's the reason for accreditation and does it serve a positive purpose? So in this episode let's pause for a moment and consider the value and validity of the accreditation process itself. Joining me today is Michael Carpenter. Now many of you will already know of Michael as the CEO of APAC but he's also a board member of the Council on Licensure Enforcement and Regulation, or CLEAR for short. CLEAR is a US-based body with member organisations around the world, including 10 here in Australia, and its mission is to bring together those seeking to improve the quality and understanding of regulation in order to enhance public protection. So who better to ask the why questions about accreditation than Michael? Welcome. Thank you David. You're a bit of an accreditation guru, how did you get involved in this field and why? I get that asked a lot
1: David and I think like everybody else nobody goes through school thinking that they want to pursue a career in accreditation and regulation and in many respects it was something where I found myself in the right place at the right time. At uh, university I studied engineering uh, and actually went through the accreditation process as a student when my course was uh, accredited by the relevant professional body at the time and I saw how important that was to me to have that, that stamp of quality assurance of the course and how important it was to the university and, and also potential employers who, who looked for students who held an accredited degree. So that was really my first exposure to it. And I found myself working um, as a, a young graduate for an engineering professional body and really By complete chance found myself tapped on the shoulder one day by the chief executive who had a role in the accreditation team that thought might be relevant to my interests and skill set and that really started me on the journey um, through accreditation and regulation and I've found myself spending maybe 25 years working in that field.
0: Now you've mentioned quality assurance Mm -hmm. that's one of the ways that accreditation is described it's also described sometimes as a an enterprise of continuous quality improvement or a form of program evaluation or various combinations of all those concepts. So how do you define accreditation?
1: So I think it can be all of those things and not all accreditation processes are the same. I've worked with processes in the past that that could be described by all the ways you've just used and uh, I think a good process is, is probably a combination of those things at APAC our process is, is driven by the need to uphold public safety. So, you know, there are elements of quality assurance, there are elements of um, identifying areas for quality improvement. You know, there's definitely uh, you know, a strong focus on program evaluation, but it, it's driven by that need to ensure strong outcomes, whatever they may be, uh, to ensure public protection. So I don't think accreditation is, is one thing. Um, I think for bodies like APAC and, and bodies like us that work within the national scheme in Australia, it's very much driven by wanting to ensure public safety in other fields where perhaps there isn't regulation and accreditation isn't a, a legal requirement, then it's driven perhaps more with a, a bit of a focus on quality assurance and, and as a benchmark as well uh, of, of programmes. So. Uh, I don't have a good definition for you because it's, it's always changed where I've been, but I think all the elements you describe really make up a good accreditation process.
0: So when did accreditation become a thing? When did when did people start to see the need to presumably impose a set of uh, consistent standards, not just in psychology, I'm talking much more broadly? Yeah, I, I think it has its origins
1: back in the, the very late 50s, early 60s, um, and it looked at quite a bit different than it does today and was far less formal, but that's when it started to emerge in some fields and it was driven really by, um, I think, external mm. needs, you know, employers wishes to have some sort of uh, mark of assurance that the graduates of a programme w- would hold certain sets of skills. I think more and more so students were looking for something that told them they were going to follow a programme that, that met certain standards, would, would give them something that they were looking for. Um, and that's how accreditation was for for many decades. It was um, it wasn't something that was legally required to practice or demanded by government, but but something really that was demanded by consumers, both students as consumers, and I guess then employers as you know, consumers of the graduates of those programs to give them some some assurance that. The students were being trained in the right things and were graduating with more or less the right competencies to be fit to take on certain jobs. Now, that's evolved um, in more recent times. Accreditation has become an accepted part of the regulatory process, more so in healthcare, but in many fields as well. So it's seen as the first step in in building um, competent graduates who um, are safe to, to treat the public um, to work with vulnerable, vulnerable members of society or you know, have roles where they have the potential to cause great harm um, so accreditation's really evolved from that, that quality assurance role to be something much, much more, although the quality assurance aspect is, is still important. Um, you'll see in, in fields where professions are not regulated um, but the, the relevant professional bodies still require. Students to to have graduated with an accredited degree to to demonstrate a degree of professional competency. And so across almost every professional field now It's seen as the first step to being an accepted professional
0: There was obviously a time in psychology where accreditation was either a very light touch or maybe non-existent How bad were things in the Wild West of psychology education before the accreditation sheriff rode into town?
1: I don't think they were any any better or worse than the situation I've described. I think psychology has followed a very similar path to to many professions, where you know it, it started out as a body of knowledge that that students um, uh, studied, uh, and that need for accreditation evolved, you know, driven by by students' wishes, employers' wishes, um, and you know because it's sort of seen as a, a health profession, graduates. Um, you know, often working with, with vulnerable groups, the the need for that perhaps evolves more quickly than it did in uh, sort of non-health fields. I think accreditation developed not so much that there was a problem with psychology, but there was seen to be a, a public need to, I think, assure people that, that graduates of psychology programs were competent, fit for practice, you know, understood all the things that, could, that went around that, you know, making right decisions, behaving ethically, understanding their their public safety obligations. Um, so that led to accreditation in the psychology space at a relatively early stage. And you know, that developed through the Australian Psychological Society as, as the professional body and transitioned to, to APEC um, and the role we currently have today um, working with the psychology board where accreditation has a, a formal regulatory role that's actually captured
0: in law. So there was never a time when someone could hang up a shingle and declare themselves a psychologist without anybody ever actually checking that they knew what they were talking about?
1: Well, well they could, and, and that's really the point of regulation, that, that it, it limits that. Um, and while you hope people will do the right thing, there's you know, always a section of, of you know, any professional society that, that don't. So back, uh, back in my time when I worked for the British Psychological Society, um, and this was sort of 15, 20 years ago, um, psychology at that time in the UK wasn't a regulated profession there was an established professional body um, it was sort of it was understood if you wanted to practice psychology in the UK that you were a member of the British Psychological Society and, and many employers required membership to, to employ you in bodies like the National Health Service but people could do exactly what you described uh, they could put a sign on the door that said psychologist um, and legally there was no no way that that could be stopped. So I actually managed uh, the project for the British Psychological Society to transition psychology to regulation in the UK, um, which came into being in 2009. And that was actually through protection of title. So the British government now through legislation actually regulates the use of titles that prevents exactly the situation you've described. So Mm. it's one of the benefits of regulation at a, a very simple level. It's a bit of a blunt instrument. That it it prevents use of titles that could mislead the public Um, but it obviously does much more than that so it's one of the benefits of regulation now that in Australia um, you you and I as non psychologists couldn't hold ourselves out to be something we're not so that that's one of the parts that accreditation plays
0: in in the accreditation in the the regulation process. Do you find it frustrating and correct me if I'm wrong uh, that anyone can put themselves forward as a counsellor And obviously there's sometimes a little bit of a crossover in terms of how a member of the public regards a counsellor and a psychologist.
1: There is and um, I I suspect many psychologists, many of our stakeholders will will have strongly held views about this and I'm not going to perhaps get into a a murky debate about that. I think the the issue you raise is that people on the inside will understand the difference between a psychologist and a counsellor, what they offer. Uh, what they don't offer the the regulatory um, boundaries that that um, that relate to them. I think the challenge is that that many members of the public won't necessarily understand that difference um, and again that's why regulation exists. so I, I know in many countries there have been calls or pushes for counselors to to be subject to regulation in the same way that psychologists are to to, to fulfill exactly that that function to protect the public and and ensure that people understand their choices so, um, APAC doesn't have a, a view on that. You know, we, we, we carry out work on behalf of the government, but I know there will be many in the profession who have strongly held views about that. And it'll be interesting to see what the future holds in terms of where regulation goes.
0: Now, in preparing for this episode, I came across a research paper, which was published in 2020, and it was produced on behalf of the International Health Professions Accreditation Outcomes Consortium. And that looked at the role of accreditation in the education of health professionals more broadly. And it quotes Richard Horton in The Lancet in 2010 as saying, and I quote, A strong case is made that the present content, organisation and delivery of health professionals education have failed to serve the needs and interests of patients and populations. Now, that's pretty serious stuff. How much was that true, do you think, in 2010, and how much has changed since? Uh,
1: They are strong words, Um, and a lot has changed in the the 12 years since 2010. I mean, I don't think where we were in 2010 was uh, problematic, Um, but I think when we we look back at where accreditation was then and where it is now, it was very different. And I think where we are now, I can say that accreditation is better equipped to to protect the public and produce graduates who are um, are better equipped to to enter the workforce with an understanding of uh, the competencies needed to work safely and again, all the things around that, what what appropriate behaviour looks like. And Public safety is is our reason for being. Um, Our focus with accreditation at APAC is is primarily about ensuring public safety. The transition we've seen in in that decade from 2010 is a shift from what accreditation used to be, which was really looking at at the inputs to programs, you know, what what building blocks did programs have in place that would imply good outcomes? So were the staff appropriately qualified? Were the right things taught? Um, Was the student staff ratio at a number we felt was appropriate? And so, of course, from an accreditation perspective, those things are very easy to measure. They're black and white. You have the staff or you don't have the staff. You have the student staff ratio or you don't. Um, Those things, of course, don't guarantee an outcome. So accreditation has shifted uh, internationally. It's it's not just what what APAC does. Uh, We're part of a trend, but very much shifted towards looking at the outcomes of programs. So accreditation now for for us um, and, and largely globally is looking at where the, the students land at the point of graduation. So have they achieved the competencies that are considered important to be able to practise safely? And yeah, how does an education provider assure that that happens on a, a consistent and regular basis? And so really while we ask many of the same questions as part of the process, that lens is very different now. And you know, We're really looking at, at what the, the out, output of that programme is rather than what the input of that programme is. And so, that has been a significant shift that addresses I think some of those concerns um, that that you've identified Um, you know it's it's looking at whether the the product is fit for purpose rather than just the um, the process that students go through would give them the opportunity uh, to come out of the the other end fit for purpose and I think that's an important shift and for an accrediting body that's harder um, because you're not really just ticking things off a list to make sure they're all there you're you're looking at the mechanisms within an education provider, the governance of a provider to ensure that that those mechanisms are applied consistently and you can have confidence that that all students have a a consistent and a consistently strong experience. Uh, So I think accreditation is more challenging because of that, but also more robust because of that.
0: Now you mentioned uh, safety, protecting Mm -hmm. the public. That same paper, also concluded that the quality of health professionals' education has a powerful impact on graduate outcomes, and that accreditation contributes to a virtual value chain through its impact on the quality of education. And that in turn affects the outcome in terms of graduate abilities and practice patterns. So, to put that briefly, how students are taught affects really their professional outcomes down the line. So that, I think, goes some way to underscoring the importance of APAC's mission mm-hmm. in regards to safety. It does, and, and I
1: talked earlier on that accreditation is really the first step in the regulatory process, um, and very deliberately so. It's, it's about giving employers confidence that, that all graduates of accredited programs meet a, a minimum threshold, A minimum doesn't mean Weak or low it, you know it, it's a high standard but uh, they can be assured that that students graduating from an accredited course have the competencies that, that the profession says they need to practice safely and those will evolve over time of course but you know our role is is absolutely vital you know it's really the foundation of the regulatory process to make sure that that students are appropriately trained understand um, what they can do what they can't do what they should do what they shouldn't do um, how do they behave professionally, ethically, appropriately? Um, you know, how do they interact with with other professions? So, uh, you know, a big trend we've seen, maybe to go back to your last question, in in the last 10 years, has been more of a focus on interprofessional learning. So, for, for the psychologist, understanding their role um, in in the broader health picture, um, if that's the setting they're working in, you know, at what point do they interact with with doctors, with physiotherapists, with nurses, with with yeah. Other health professionals who may be part of a team uh, treating patients. So um, accreditation has a key role to play in uh, the student understanding that, um, and you know, that that then obviously leads to to hopefully graduates who who are safe um, and you know, fit to practice. We we don't have. It. I think you know, it'd be very interesting to see the, the data from a regulator on you know, what you know, what complaints looked like. before accreditation, after accreditation, um, and and, that difference that accreditation makes.
0: Of course, safety isn't actually a fixed and permanent term. I know that uh, APAC is encouraging higher education providers to give a a greater degree of prominence to training around the, the cultural needs and requirements, for instance, of Indigenous people. Is that correct? Can you talk us through that?
1: It is. I mean, that's, that's been a strong focus in Australia. Our, our colleagues in New Zealand you know, are, are well ahead of us there. There's been a strong focus on, on practitioners in New Zealand working with, with you know, people from, from Maori culture for, for many years. So that, that's been a, a very strong focus here in the last sort of five to ten years, particularly under ARPA as the, the healthcare regulator. Um, across all of the, the 16 professions it, it regulates, um, that as part of uh, a strong education process, not only are students required to understand the, I guess what you call the technical competencies, um, but also that stronger focus on the you know, the patient or client groups they'll be working with. So, you know, a large part of that has been cultural competence. So that that's understanding that you know, people come from different backgrounds, with different expectations, different norms, and the psychologist being able to adapt to that. So obviously within Australia, there's a strong focus on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, but it is, you know, it's broader than that as well. We're a a country um, with a a strong history of immigration, people coming from many parts of the world with different values and traditions. And so a very strong emphasis um, in the last few years from ARPRA as the regulator of the psychology board. And through to to bodies like APAC to ensure that that that's a a key part of of students education and development and that they don't graduate without uh, a strong understanding of of working with a wide range of of, um, individuals, groups um, and and, people with with varied beliefs and so uh, we, we capture that in our accreditation standards as an important thing that an education provider must put in place and I know that that ARPA as a regulator is is putting stronger and stronger emphasis on that for for people registered to practice as well, that they they have to be able to continue to demonstrate um, that they're competent in this area and and able to work with a wide range of groups. And I think that's a a really good development we've seen in the last 10 years.
0: Now the paper I've mentioned a number of times, and I'll put a link to it uh, when the podcast is published online so people can access it for themselves, discusses some trends and tensions in the accreditation of professional training. Now, we haven't got time to go through quite a long list, but I'd like to throw three up to you and I'd love to hear your opinion on each of them. So we'll take them one at a time. So the first is the uh, tension between continuous versus episodic. In other words, is accreditation a rolling process or is it something where you come in and take a, a snapshot on occasions? What's your view on that?
1: So to, I guess, go back to our earlier questions, if you look back at what accreditation was, it was definitely episodic. So the accrediting body would turn up at the education provider every number of years. Five is, is a common number um, in accreditation, but it, it could be something else. Um, and they would assess what they saw in front of them, and they would report on that, and they would normally accredit the program and then come back in five years time. And obviously, a lot can change in that time. Um, you know, bachelor degrees, often three years, you can imagine you could cycle many cohorts of students through a program before the next visit and a lot could change. So accreditation has evolved to be much more of a continuous process and that 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 periodic visit is still important because that's the, you know, the, the kind of the real touch point you have with the education provider where you get a chance to look in depth at what they're offering to to talk to the numerous stakeholders the staff the students um, about what their experience is and and to form a a clear view on whether those programs are meeting the standards but under the national law that APAC operates there's actually a requirement on us to do two things and one is to accredit programs against standards but also then to monitor those programs on a continuous basis to ensure they continue to meet the standards so that really captures where Contemporary accreditation is so our role now is is very much continuous where we have usually annual contact as a minimum with a provider to uh, Assure ourselves that things continue to track well, but also to to flag at an early stage where there are risks That a program may not be able to meet all of the standards which allows us then to work with that education provider to uh, To make good um, any shortfalls we see against the standards or, or deal with any issues so that The educational experience of the students stays strong um, and that we can be as assured as you can be by any process that that all of those students will graduate with a full list of competencies so that's been a real shift in accreditation over time and i think a very important one and that's absolutely globally and not just um, either in psychology or within australia
0: the second dichotomy that the paper raises is a very topical one in the in the context of the pandemic and that's whether on-site visits basically are better than document reviews or vice versa. Mm. So given that APAC in the last two years has had to shift from on-site visits to a uh, good friend, Zoom, what's your take on that?
1: So I, I, I think two years ago, David, almost everyone involved in accreditation. Um, again, you know, outside of APAC would absolutely have said that the, the face-to-face assessment and, and site visit where the team goes to the education provider um, is an absolutely essential part of the accreditation process and we couldn't possibly deliver a process without that element. Now, as you say, the last two years have forced us to rethink that and putting aside the fact that we've all been in far too many Zoom meetings. Um, what we've seen is that it's it's allowed us to, to continue to, to run the process. now. I think the the long-term outcome of that is that both the, the face-to-face visit and the virtual visit remain or will be important tools in the accreditation process and the virtual visit will, will have a place. I think what we've probably learned in those two years is that there are absolutely times where it would be easier to undertake an assessment and you would learn more if you are face-to-face around the table and I think that particularly holds true where you're probably dealing with more complex assessments, either large numbers of programs, a large volume of information, multiple stakeholders, um, a program or a provider that's experiencing challenges and you need to perhaps explore those in more detail. What you you don't necessarily get from the Zoom meeting is a sense of uh, what's happening in a a room. If you're meeting with a group of stakeholders, you don't necessarily get the opportunity to, to see the body language. They can actually provide quite helpful clues to you as an assessor. So, uh, as Australia opens up um, and, and travel becomes something we can, can rely on a little bit more, I think we will see ourselves transitioning back to, to face-to-face assessments for sort of many of our, our cycle visits, where we undertake the more comprehensive assessment. But certainly, the virtual visit will remain a, a useful tool for um, either shorter or more limited assessments or follow-up assessments. Um, and I think that's really important as well to us uh, as an employer that wants to be a good corporate citizen. It does force us to think about things like our carbon footprint um, and you know, moving assessors around the country and in Australia in particular that's always on a plane of course. So I think we will see a little bit of a shift moving forward where we don't lose the face-to-face site visit but we you know we, we use virtual assessments where appropriate and fit for purpose a little bit more. We've We've shown ourselves that it can work and again speaking to colleagues globally through through bodies like Clare, that's definitely been the experience of colleagues internationally as well. And I think um, that will, you know, the virtual visit will become a, an accreditation tool that we, we do use when, when appropriate from time to time. And I think you know, that's been a positive for us that's come out of the last two years that it's, it's forced us to engage with it and shown us that it can work in circumstances.
0: Now the, the third tension uh, that the paper cites that I'll throw in your direction is the tension between peer review and accreditation experts so obviously there are some who feel that only other professionals can can judge them rather than an accreditation body so how do you see that that tension being resolved
1: okay i think all of our listeners david will will probably have quite clearly held views on this matter and you know again to to think historically accreditation did really start out as, as peer review. It was professionals assessing other professionals and and the programs they're delivering. And I, th- I think that remains an important part of, of you know, many accreditation processes. I think it's you know, very hard to justify, for example, that a group of non-psychologists could adequately judge and assess what a psychology program was delivering. So I, th- I think having that peer input as part of the assessment is is very important, not just in terms of assuring ourselves of the outcomes of the process, but also probably the credibility of the process. But I think the accreditation expert has a really important role, and I think that's something we've seen evolve um, in more recent years, the, the recognition of the role of the, you know, in our case, the non-psychologist that they could play. And So uh, in our process, for example, we always have an APAC staff member. As part of the assessment team. Now they're not there to look at the professional elements of the program. That's absolutely the you know, the, the fellow psychologists will will do that. But um, the the accreditation expert will have a view on what does good governance look like? They'll have a view on how to run a good accreditation process. Um, and so that adds value to the peer review and, and actually makes for a more comprehensive assessment. So, I don't think it's necessarily a case of either or, but actually combining the the best of both worlds to have a more comprehensive process. So, again, I think that's where probably contemporary accreditation processes are going.
0: In addition to your roles with APAC and Clear, you're also a director with two business colleges, the Australian Institute of Business and the National Institute of Organisation Dynamics Australia. And that means you've seen accreditation at work from the other side of the table, although we should make clear that these colleges are in a different professional sector, so there's no conflict of interest. What have you learned from being, in a sense, in, investigated by the accreditors?
1: It's, um, it's really interesting being on the other side of the table, David, um, and really enlightening. And what you, what you, I think, find yourself doing being on the... That, the education provider side is to some extent trying to to second guess the regulator or the accrediting body and in both these cases it's been working with TEXA as, as the federal government's higher education regulator um, and you, you find yourself on the education provider side trying to understand what it is they're looking for trying to it's, to some extent second guess what it is you can provide to them to to meet their needs but also then trying to understand the, the, de- the decision they've conveyed to you. Um, so probably what it's reinforced to me in my, my APAC job is, is the importance of, I think, trying to be transparent where we can about what we do, why we're doing it. Um, if we ask for particular information from an education provider as part of an assessment, being clear why we're doing that. And so I guess that's the notion of trying to as much as we can work in partnership with higher education providers which is not to say we don't have I guess what you call a policing element to our role where we're still trying to uphold standards and where we we have to be taking action against um, programs that that don't meet the standards but starting from I guess a a point where we want to work with education providers with a, a shared understanding of the process so we're clear about what we're doing and why we're doing it. They understand what we're doing and why we're doing it. And they can then hopefully make sure that we have the answers to the questions that we need to ask and we have those first time. So definitely being on that other side of the fence, I've been exposed to, in some cases, you know, the confusion or the frustration that people have felt um, when dealing with an accreditation process. So that's been hugely valuable to me, which is not to say we get it right every time at APAC, but we're always trying to ask ourselves how we, we can better work with providers to to be transparent and ensure that the effort that they put into the process, and we know it's a huge effort for our accreditation providers, for our education providers, it's a lot of work, that they're doing what they need to do, but but no more. And so uh, I I found it hugely valuable to have that foot in both camps.
0: Finally, what do you see as the future of accreditation? Are there any trends that you're detecting?
1: Um, Yeah, look, I think you've and that's a big question to finish with, David. <laughs> but um, uh, we've touched on a few, I think, throughout the the conversation. You know, certainly, I think accreditation will remain a, a, a crucial component in the the regulatory process um, for for the reasons we've discussed. It's that that first step in producing you know, competent and, and competent professionals who who are safe to practice and having them understand what what that means. Um, I think we are seeing and it's it, it's not unique to our field by any means, but government pressure um, to reduce regulation and the red tape around regulation that will be familiar to, to colleagues in many fields. So I think we, we will see more questions asked of the accreditation process um, to ensure that it remains fit for purpose, but it, it, it does what it needs to do and does no more. Um, I think there will be some pressure from governments as part of that to ensure more consistency across accreditation processes. So education providers uh, will obviously be dealing with, with many accreditation processes in the course of, of a year or a, a multi-year period. And so yeah, definitely I think pressure from government to ensure that, that those processes are more joined up to reduce the burden on education providers. So uh, I think we'll see that continue we'll continue the journey, I think, towards true outcome-based accreditation. I talked a little bit about that journey we've seen in the last 10 years. Um, you know, it's not that we've moved from one end of the spectrum to another, but we've moved along that spectrum where we, we are looking now more at outcomes of programs, but when you know, we, we still have an eye to, to some of those inputs. So I think that journey will continue. And of course, what that means is perhaps more freedom for education providers to, to structure and deliver their programs in a way that that suits uh, their needs and place to their strengths while still delivering the outcomes we demand. So I think that will continue um, and I think another trend we will probably see continuing is also increasing emphasis on I guess the, the, the professional issues around the, the core competencies. So ensuring that students graduate with the relevant core competencies will always remain an important part of accreditation. Those competencies may evolve over time but what we've seen in recent years and I think we'll continue to see are, is more emphasis on the things that sit around that. So the, the, the cultural awareness of students that you've touched on, um, the, the ability to, to practice interprofessionally, understanding where your role inter- interacts with, with the role of others, understanding when you, you, you hand over a patient to uh, another professional because that's appropriate. So I think an increasing focus on, I guess you, you'd say, more rounded graduates who can not just do the the technical things their profession requires, but are are competent professionals very early in their careers. So I think we'll see more emphasis on that. Um, And I I think within the the, the national scheme that we operate in particular, definitely more of an alignment of of accreditation standards and processes across the, uh, the, the accrediting bodies to ensure consistency, transparency for education providers. So I think those are all the trends we'll see. And and I'm seeing that internationally as well. There's there's much more emphasis on those professional issues, um, accreditation being fit for purpose but not overreaching. So I think there's strong emphasis in that in Australia, but it's not just unique to Australia. So I think we'll continue to see it evolve.
0: I know I said that was the final question, but I really (laughs) have to ask you, given that you are a board member of clear and clear is a primarily north american-based organization do you see any particular differences between the way accreditation is approached between let's say the united states and australia are we ahead behind different on a on a a different track
1: Um, i I think we're on a different track in that I think you would say generally accreditation processes in Australia are a little more contemporary um, based on I guess of the criteria I've, I've outlined in, in our conversation. One of the challenges our colleagues in, in the US have for an example is that you have accreditation generally is not, and certainly regulation is, is not a, a national issue, it tends to be state-led. so. Uh, you can have 50 different approaches to accreditation, registration, regulation for a particular profession. And so movement across particular states can be very difficult. So in, um, in Australia, the int- introduction of the, um, the National uh, Registration um, and Accreditation Scheme introduced a, a federal model of regulation that allows professionals to, you know, to train anywhere in the country, to move and practice across the country. You don't have that so readily in North America, for example. So the process is much more restricted there. So we're definitely ahead in in, in that respect. In a, I think a system that is more forward-looking and fit for purpose. Uh, but many of the issues I've discussed are our North American colleagues are, are grappling with. It's less clear. Also, has quite a strong European membership and. Their models are, I think, much closer to the Australian models. There is lots of movement across Europe, for example, um, so very few barriers to to movement there. Larger numbers of of national regulators um, that that cover multiple professions. So in in that respect, it's not to say that, that America lags behind, but their model is quite different and perhaps has probably more of an eye to the past. Um, than, than the models we have here. So it is interesting being exposed to that and um, you're hearing what challenges that brings to, to our colleagues. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't see that that's a model that will change or, or move easily when you've got you know, 50 different stakeholders with, with uh, a range of views and a range of challenges and 50 individual pieces of legislation that govern what they do. I think their model will always just stay different while hopefully still clinging to some of the principles of modernisation we've talked about.
0: That's fascinating, but I promise no more final, final questions. Uh, we'll bring things to a close, and thank you very much for your time. If people want to read more, you can head to our website at psychologycouncil, or one Otherwise, we look forward to you joining us for our next episode, and until then, goodbye.